Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and I entitled the message tonight, The Apostate, and as we begin our study and go through it, we'll see why. At one point in Hezekiah's life, he got sick, and he almost died. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 20, but we also see that Hezekiah prayed, and that Isaiah prayed with him. And God healed Hezekiah's, uh, and, uh, uh, healed his sickness and gave him an additional 15 years to his life. Now, that was God's grace in answer to Hezekiah's prayer. But when you look at that, or I should say, when, when, but you, if you look at what happened during those additional 15 years, you have to wonder... Was it the best thing that could have happened? Because during that 15 additional year period, Hezekiah showed the wealth of his kingdom to the ambassadors from Babylon, which opened the door for King Nebuchadnezzar to come years later and to take, rob the city because they knew exactly where the gold was and they took it by force. The golden Israel tempted Babylon to come and to take it. It was a dumb thing for Hezekiah to do. And the goal was taken by force. Secondly, you'll see that Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. That means that he was born during those 15 additional years God gave Hezekiah. Now, what would be so bad about that? I mean, he had a son. The problem is that his son was the most wicked king of all the kings. Again, while he was king, there was so much wickedness that God had to step in. There has never been in any land a greater change for the worse than what happened, uh, what Judah experienced when godly Hezekiah was followed by his apostate son, King Manasseh. And, you know, we, we need to look at this and think, okay, God says I'm going to die because he told Isaiah to tell Hezekiah, prepare to die. Get your house in order because, you know, you're, you're going to go. First thing we want, oh, Lord, let me live. But we need to trust the wisdom of God. He sees the future. He knows what's going to happen in that future. We don't. It could be a horrible life. It could be a horrible thing that we might experience. And, and, it, as a, and just... It wasn't good, those additional 15 years. But we have to trust, we should trust, you know, again, in the wisdom and and the foreknowledge of God. Let's begin now in chapter 33 with verses 1 and 2. And it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Hezekiah was the best king, and he led the nation in a revival. Now his son comes to the throne. He takes over, and he's the worst king of them all. Now, why does that happen? Only God knows. From Hezekiah to a great king to to his his son, uh, Manasseh, a horrible king. Now, there are good Christian homes with wonderful Christian parents, where a child rebels against everything that their parents stand for. Then there are young homeless kids and abused kids that are all over the world. 
And when you see them, you probably think that they were neglected at home. That they saw godless, materialistic parents who fought all the time. Or they were gone all the time working for the betterment of the family. Or they came from broken homes. Everybody was into themselves. So you could see why they rebelled against it all. And just walked out. On the other hand, why will a child just walk out of a lovely Christian home and join some rebellious crowd or do some rebellious thing? It's hard to explain. Manasseh is an example of this kind of behavior. He was more than any, more evil than anybody could imagine. And yet he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. Longer than all the other kings, longer than David, longer than Solomon, his own father. Why? Because God is merciful. Because God is patient. He's long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish. So you see, God lives in eternity. He's not in a hurry to see anybody perish. Nor does he enjoy seeing people perish. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. he says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? God is more than ready and willing to save. It doesn't matter how sad or bad your case is. It's not hopeless. As long as you're alive, there is always hope. And it's a sure thing that God doesn't take pleasure in the ruin and the destruction of sinners. Nor does he want that to happen. And if they destroy themselves, he doesn't take any pleasure in it. He says, ha ha, that's what you deserve. He'd rather that they turn to him and that they would live. Because you see, his goodness is that attribute that he most glories in. And that he delights in the most. You see, he would rather see sinners turn from their evil ways and live than go on to die and go to hell. He said it. He's sworn it by these two unchangeable things, his word and his oath. And in both, it is possible. I'm sorry. And in both, it is impossible for God to lie. So again, in that, we have great comfort. He could swear by no greater than himself. He says, as I live there in Ezekiel 33, he says, as I live. In other words, God is saying, as sure as I live, those who truly repent will live too. Because they're alive in Jesus Christ. And it's a sure thing that God is sincere. And in sincerity, he calls sinners to repent. He said there, notice in verse 11, Ezekiel 33, he said, turn, turn from your evil ways. To repent is to turn from our evil way. This is what God requires sinners to do. He urges them to do this by repeated, persistent examples. In 11, he says, turn twice, turn, turn. You can hear him pleading. Stop living a life of sin and turn to me and you will be saved. If they would only turn and if they would only turn without delay, he said in Proverbs 123, I will pour out my spirit on you. And he'll accept them because it's not only what he commands, but what he encourages them to do. It's a sure thing that if sinners perish in their unrepentance, hey, it's their own doing. It's their own fault. They have nobody else to blame. If they die, it's because they acted so ridiculously and so unreasonably. As he said to the house of Israel, why will you die, O house of Israel? God would have listened to Israel, but you know what? They didn't want to be heard. You can't push God. You can't rush God. You can't move God. God is in no hurry. 
and he will give Manasseh more than enough chances to turn to him. Verses 3 through 5. Speaking of Manasseh, it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals, and he made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven, and he served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, in which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He went into idolatry head first. I mean, he was as bad as Ahab and, and Jezebel. And he worshipped Baal, just like they did. He brought the worship of the hosts of heaven into the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped Jupiter and Mercury and Venus and all of the stars. He basically set up the horoscope there. You know, you you could have your horoscope read in the temple in that time. And, you know, there are some people who still read their horoscope today. and they, They won't leave their house until they read their horoscope. Some say, well, it's just innocent fun. You know, it's kind of like reading a fortune cookie. But it's not for a lot of people. And some people put more confidence in their horoscope than they do in God. Manasseh was very interested in the horoscope. He built altars for all the host of heaven, which means he built altars for the sun, the moon, and the stars in the two courts of the house of the Lord, verse 5 says. The Babylonians, they especially worship these deities. We see that in Deuteronomy 4.19 and Ezekiel 8.16. But Manasseh didn't stop there. Look at verse 6. Also, Manasseh caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. You see, sin messes up your head. It clouds your intellect. Sin makes you stupid, literally. It corrupts your heart. Manasseh dove head first into idolatry. Now, we're not told how far he went in causing his children to pass through the fire. There were degrees. I mean... It's hard for me to imagine. There were degrees that he could cause children to pass through the fire. You know, he could, he could cause them to pass through, not to be burned up and die, but just to be burned. Human sacrifice, where he offered up even his own sons. He could have let them pass through the fire, like I said, only to get somewhat burned. Or he could put the baby right down in the arms of the red-hot idol. I mean, how much more wicked can you get? This is how far and how low idolatry will take you. And Manasseh seems to have gone all the way down as low as somebody could go. The scripture says he also practiced soothsaying, which is divination. That is trying to find out the plans and the purposes of these false gods so that they could prevent their hostility or take advantage of their favors. He practiced witchcraft and sorcery. This was trying to bring about desired results by using magical and mystical rituals. Mediums. Mediums were those who said they could contact the dead and talk with the dead. And the witch at Endor seems to have done this because she feared for her life when she realized that Saul had condemned necromancers to death. That is, those who met and and talked to the dead. There were spiritists, which means knowing ones. Literally, a divining demon in the physical body of the magician. 
whose specialty is also communication with the dead, hoping to get information that they couldn't get from the living. All of these practices were common among Canaanite and other religions, and they were strictly avoided and were to be avoided by God's people. You see, when men leave the rational service of the one true living God, and they give themselves over to either superstition or unbelief, they're very likely to give themselves up to even greater foolishness. Like accepting ideas and doing things that even a person with an average intellect would think that is really childish and it's useless. You see, it's only in God's truth that we will walk in his wisdom. But you see, once we get off that path, we lose our way. And we wander around in a world of darkness with no light. Like in a, in a maze of foolishness and error and confusion. But you see, with Jesus Christ as our teacher, we'll stay away from those roads of foolishness that would dishonor and disgrace us. Verses 7 and 8. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made. Notice, he had made it personally. He had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. Only, notice the condition, only if they are careful to do all that I command them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. God promised the people that if they would worship him and be faithful to him, he'd bless them. Notice the conditions for blessing. God's ancient promise was to never remove the people from Israel, from, uh, from the land that they inherited based on their obedience to all of the terms of the covenant. That is the law, the statutes and the ordinances that they had sworn to, that they had agreed to. The way Manasseh was behaving greatly jeopardized the people staying in the land. Let's look now what Manasseh was doing to Judah. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 now. And it says, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. You can be sure that when a man or a nation reaches this place of evil, God's going to do something. And we need to pray for California. And we need to pray for the United States of America. Because we are ripe. We are overdue. And I think the little shaker we had last week was a warning. Hey, it can get a lot worse. Sin reaches its limit when it deliberately and it purposely stops listening to the known voice of God. And we see that in our nation today. More and more laws and legislature about preaching the word of God, about pastors and counselors speaking the word of God and telling the truth of the word of God. It's being outlawed. A defiant refusal to listen when God is speaking to us. That is for sure the final straw in iniquity. And you know what? It can't go any further. And then again in verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Manasseh, I mean, God had finally said, you're done, Manasseh. 
He was actually taken from his throne. And he was carried off as a prisoner to Babylon. When you won't listen to God's instruction or, or, or the ways that he uses to influence you, God will come in and he will use severe discipline. You see, for Manasseh, it took defeat. And it took humiliation. Think of it, it took hooks. A ring like the one you put in, in a bull's nose and hooks to lead him around. Now, people in the east would lead, would lead their large and wild animals by a bridle fastened to a ring, which is put through the cartilage of the animal's nose. And the Syrians would often string a number of prisoners of wars together this way with their hands behind them and rings fastened through their nose. Manasseh was bound in chains. He was a prisoner. He had to leave the city of David and the land of his fathers and put on an embarrassing and humiliating display in the land of the enemy. Think of that. Instead of being led by a loving God. That's what it takes sometimes, unfortunately. To us, God's discipline comes in different ways. Which is usually, sometimes it can be bodily affliction. It can be a great loss in our life. We can be separated from those who are near and dear to us. It can be some form of bitter humiliation or grief resulting in loneliness. But you see, in time, and unfortunately, that's what it takes sometimes. I should say, fortunately, because if, if it brings us to the Lord, it's good. But in time, Manasseh's, Manasseh's eyes were opened. He saw his sin. He saw how foolish he had been. And in time, he learned that he had, hadn't just forsaken the good way of his father Hezekiah, but he had seriously and foolishly turned away from the living God. Here's the thing. You don't know what it will take to humble a stubborn, sinful heart. Maybe your own heart, my heart. When it's influenced and surrenders to one affliction after another. We don't know what it'll take. But in time, that final blow, that straw that breaks the camel's back, you could say, the sword, it pierces the heart. It doesn't pierce the heart to kill you, but to bring life to you. And when that happens, then, in then you recognize the truth. And then you recognize God. You recognize that he's here. You recognize his demands. You recognize his displeasure. You recognize his fatherly purpose. Then you also see how great and evil it is. Then you call to God and you acknowledge him. Your heart is humbled before God, just like Manasseh now. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now, when he was in affliction, notice, now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God. Isn't it sad that we have to wait till we're in some kind of trial, some kind of affliction? He implored the Lord God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. It says, and prayed to him and he received his entreaty and, his, and heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into the kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Notice what it took. All this to know that his Lord was God. He recognizes his guilt. He prays for mercy and asks God, Lord, forgive me, restore me. And then he surrenders to God. 
If we're not willing to surrender ourselves to God, which is true evidence that you've repented, then it's only an act. It's a lie. It's not true repentance. If it's real, there, it will be accompanied by a pure desire and a definite decision to return to the Lord because we are guilty of forsaking uh, our, our sin and it's true evidence of repentance. True repentance is evidenced by a change in the way I'm living. If it's real, it has to be accompanied by a pure desire and a definite decision to return to God who we are guilty of forsaking. And again, it's true evidence of repentance. And then God gives his mercy. Manasseh soon found out how terribly infinite his mistake was in his apostasy, in the way he was living. Because the God of his fathers proved to be a God full of compassion and great mercy. And he heard the humble Manasseh. And God restored Manasseh and God brought him back to his kingdom. So you see, God does hear and God does pardon and God does restore. He forgives our sin and he takes us back and he restores our peace, our hope, our joy and our life in him and with him. Thank God. What a great picture of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 13 here, we see the prayer and salvation of Manasseh. First, the prayer. Hezekiah prayed to God. The affliction did its work on Manasseh. I'm sorry, Manasseh prayed to God. Uh, Hezekiah did pray to God. And affliction did its work on Manasseh. And it humbled Manasseh before the Lord to, point that he prayed, uh, to the point that he prayed and he wanted God to help him. This prayer here should encourage any sinner to ask for God's help. And you know what? It doesn't matter how great your sin might be. You can still pray to God and ask for his deliverance. Then we see the deliverance, his salvation. God heard his prayer. God brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. There are two things to look at in Manasseh's deliverance. First of all, how great his deliverance was. It was an amazing change. Think of it for a king who was hauled off in chains to Babylon, then for him to be set free and to be king again in Judah. But it happened. It shows us that God is a God of second chances. Even third, fourth, and fifth chances. God gives us a second chance. God is able to do great and awesome wonders. But the greatest wonder is salvation of the soul. That is the deliverance of the soul from sin, death, and hell. Secondly, we see the grace of this salvation, this deliverance. If there was ever a man who did not deserve to be restored to his throne, it was Manasseh. But as Paul said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Think of it, the worst sinners can be wonderfully saved by God. Then we see the sanctification of Manasseh. Verse 13 says, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Salvation increased Manasseh's spiritual knowledge. It will always do that. When you experience salvation of the living God, your knowledge will become blessed with spiritual truth in the word of God. You'll grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And what's really neat is the Bible will no longer be a closed book to you. 
It will no longer be a book that you can't understand. And I've shared it before, and maybe you've experienced it, but when I tried reading the Bible as an unbeliever, I closed it up after the first chapter. It made no sense to me whatever. You know why? Paul said, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And that's exactly what I thought. Why would anybody read the Bible? It says, nor can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Unless you are a spiritual man and woman, you will not understand the things of the Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can give you illumination, can turn the light on to God's truth. Did you know that it's possible for some people to read the Bible and still not understand it? And I love it when I've talked to people, not born again, about the things of God, and they want to say, you know what, I've read the Bible before. Well, that's wonderful, but you don't understand a thing about it. And that they want to argue with it. The natural man wants to argue about the things of the Spirit. It's possible to read the Bible and even study it for many years, memorizing a lot of Scripture and still not understand it. Just like the scribes and the Pharisees didn't understand it in Jesus' day even though they were so well-trained in the Old Testament Scriptures, yet they still missed its essential message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They totally failed to recognize the promised Messiah when He came and He lived among them. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah they didn't, because they didn't really believe Moses, the great lawgiver, the one that they placed their hope in. They didn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because those things seemed to be nothing but foolishness to them. And that's because those men did not belong to God. And because they didn't belong to God, they couldn't understand the Scriptures. Because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the Word of God is only spiritually discerned. In other words, only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means, what He's saying. Those scribes and Pharisees, like anyone and everyone who rejects God, lived only in the realm of the flesh, the realm of the natural man. They had no way and they had no desire to understand the spiritual nature of God's Word. The natural man cannot know or understand the things of the Holy Spirit because they can only be spiritually discerned. Paul said in Galatians 5.17, and here's why, for the lust, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these things are contrary to one another. The flesh trying to understand the Spirit. They, 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 you know, they're contrary to one another. God's word is spiritually learned, it's spiritually understood, and the natural man is spiritually dead, and that's why he cannot understand it. And you know what? The psalmist understood this. He understood the need for God to, to, to illuminate the word to him. That's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, 18. And this is the prayer that I pray and you should pray before you open the word of God and begin to read it. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Wondrous things means wonderful truths. The psalmist didn't need the Lord to help him read the word. But the psalmist knew he needed God's help to understand the word. Someone said that the best man can do on his own is to gnaw the bark of Scripture, but never get to the wood. 
Right on. God the Holy Spirit is the only one who can open our eyes of understanding before we can really know and correctly interpret the truth of the Word of God. God's truth is only available to those who are born again and in whom His Spirit dwells because only the Holy Spirit can illumine the Scriptures to us. Verses 14 through 17. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it closed Ophel and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them outside the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. This is, there, there's new life for those who have been forgiven. Manasseh goes back to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He removes the false gods. He removes the false, false altars that he had built. He throws them out of the city. He repairs the altar of the Lord. And he reestablishes the true worship of the Lord God. You see, when we return to God, we return to purity to uprightness, to reverence in spirit in, the thing, in, our, in our behavior, and to all godliness in thought and behavior all at the same time. But there was still one serious problem here. Manasseh could not totally undo what he had done. Notice verse 17 again. The people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. In other words, the people never did truly come back to God but still sacrificed in the high places. There wasn't one particular thing or a number of things that Manasseh could do to bring them back to the place that he had so totally destroyed. And sometimes it takes a long time to restore people to the habits that they have forsaken. Nor could Manasseh bring back to life the brave and faithful men that he had murdered back in 2 Kings chapter 21. And here's the, here's the, the, the point. There are some things that even the greatest repentance can't undo. No matter how sorry you are, no matter how much you plead with God, people do some terribly, really terrible things when they've rejected God that are irreversible. You can't fix them. It won't bring back the wasted years. It won't undo the harmful and deadly influences that have been at work in people's hearts and lives, nor make up for those wrongs and those injuries that those people have suffered physically or spiritually because of you, because of our sin. That's why we need to remember, even though repentance and restoration is a blessing, only a life of holy service from start to finish is a better blessing. Verses 18 through 25. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. 
Also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Notice Manasseh's evil rubbed off on his son. And it's understandable why his son took the same evil path his father did. Ammon followed his father's footsteps in his early days. Now, we don't know a lot about Ammon because his life was pretty uneventful. But here's the thing. He could have had a happy, wonderful, and useful career like David and Hezekiah and Josiah. He had a fair chance, just as well as anybody else, but he lost it. Why? Because of his own foolishness. Let's look at his foolishness. He had a golden opportunity to have a wonderful reign. He was heir to the, <clears throat> to the throne of Judah. <coughs> Judah was the home of God. So it was the home of truth and godly wisdom. Excuse me. He was there to reign, he, to reign there in Judah. That was a choice job, if you will, for lack of better words. It was a choice heritage for any man. But he was reckless and he threw it all away. Ammon deliberately chose the evil way. And at 22, he couldn't use his father's excuse for being led astray. The stern discipline that Manasseh went through and the mercy that he found in a forgiving God that surely should have affected and controlled his son Ammon. But Ammon ignored and cared less about the lessons that were shown to his father through a bigger than life experience and he still chose the evil way. He also refused to be corrected and restored so he continued down the wrong path according to verse 23. He also stirred up the hatred of those that he ruled. And it brought an early and humiliating death to him. He enjoyed only two short years of being the king. So after a dishonorable reign, his life ended miserably and shamefully. And as a result, he forfeited his heritage. In closing, we have a, a, a really great heritage waiting for us in Jesus Christ. But while we're waiting, we might be tempted by sin to give up this great heritage. It's forfeited by a sinful choice to live the carnal life. It's forfeited by ignoring God's voice, His word, and by dangerously, put, dangerously putting off our choice to choose Christ for another time. That's a dangerous position to date because you aren't guaranteed more time. 
And last is true wisdom, and it's our duty to immediately take that important step of surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, which then takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of God. And it assures us, it guarantees us friendship, the friendship of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer for all eternity. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful chapter, God. So rich in your word, Lord. Father, again, we just... God, help us to not take things for granted, God, especially you, Lord. Father, our time is short. Our time is precious. It's valuable. We don't get it back again, Lord. And Father, to to live a life without Christ, what a waste, Father. What an emptiness. What a poor choice. And Father, it doesn't matter what we've done, where we've been. Doesn't matter how bad we've been, God. You can change that. You can change it all in a minute, in an instant. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't, you're not born again. You don't know him as your Lord and Savior. This is the time to do that. This is the time to recognize that, that you could end up like Manasseh in a humiliating affliction a humiliating situation that would that would just be very harmful to you. Now is the time to recognize the love of God. When Manasseh repented and God blessed him and restored him. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your time. The, whole, the, the worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship right now. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then while we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way to the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith. Mm-hmm.